Well, I don't know about you, but I am excited to look into the Word of God this morning. We're back in John chapter 6, if you'd like to turn there. We've been working our way through this chapter. It's one of the longest chapters in the Bible, and uh, it is so rich, isn't it? I mean, every section that we have looked at in John chapter 6 just knocks us off of our feet in gratitude for what God has done for us. God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son to come to this sin-filled, sin-tainted world to die in the place of sinners like us. And we are going to look at another passage today, often misunderstood, albeit often misunderstood, but powerful, as we have seen as we've worked our way through this glorious chapter. Well, as you're turning, there are no two ways about it. My favorite meal of the year is on Thanksgiving Day. I love the turkey and the gravy and the mashed potatoes and the stuffing and the filling and all the fixings. And even as I say that, my mouth is beginning to water. It's the one day of the year where we splurge. It doesn't matter if we are on a diet or we're really watching what we eat. We set all that aside and we gorge ourselves on Thanksgiving Day. And then after we have eaten as much as we can, someone asks, is everyone ready for dessert? It's hard to pass up, isn't it? Pumpkin pie, apple pie, cherry pie, every kind of pie you can think of is in play on Thanksgiving Day. And then there are the leftovers for later. We literally eat all day long. It's a glorious day of eating. But if we ate like that every day, we would be as big as a house and our health would deteriorate. Because God created our bodies with a certain care and complexity. We're to take care of them, which means that it's important to be careful what we eat because there's a direct connection between what we eat and the health of our bodies. There's even an old saying about this, that you are what you eat. But despite being careful with what we eat, we will all still die. Physical death is inevitable. It's a direct result of God's curse on sinful man. The wages of sin is death. And so death is a reality for every single one of us. But as we considered last week, we're not just physical beings. We are spiritual beings as well. And and just as man has physical hunger, he also has spiritual hunger. So in an attempt to satisfy the spiritual cravings of man, I read somewhere that there are over 4,000 religions in the world. 4,000 false religions that will lead man straight to hell. It seems that sinful man will worship just about anything. Despite the fact that Jehovah God, the creator of all these men, has revealed himself that he exists. Romans chapter 1 tells us that God has revealed himself through creation. All that we can see, the grand designer, the grand creator, he has revealed himself to us through what we call general revelation. And not only that, but he's also implanted into the heart of every man that he's created that he exists. But because of man's sin, 
and the sin nature that was inherited from Adam, man suppresses the truth. He suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. He has no desire to even acknowledge God. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about original sin this morning as we begin. Original sin, the sin of Adam. Barry read for us verses 1 through 11 of Romans chapter 5, verse 12, which follows what he read, talks about Adam and the sin nature. And so there have been basically three major views of the effect of Adam's sin that have been perpetuated over the the centuries and even the millennia. There was a British monk by the name of Pelagius back in the fourth century who was a theologian and he taught that while Adam sinned and he acknowledged the sin of Adam, he said that it was a bad example, but there were no ill effects on Adam's posterity. And so this came to be known as Pelagianism. Pelagianism, that man was not affected in any way, shape, or form by the sin of Adam. And so therefore, man can reach perfection. Man can uh, reach out to God. There is no restrictions on man because of the sin of Adam. Well, Pelagianism was decried as a heresy uh, in the early church, and so it was dismissed. Heresy, that is heresy, isn't it? And so it was put aside as, as a heretical teaching by this guy by the name of Pelagius. So Pelagianism was set aside, and on came the, to the scene what we know as semi-Pelagianism. And so because Pelagianism was rejected as heresy, semi-Pelagianism took the, the forefront, and most churches today, if you drive down the street in this area, most of the churches that you drive by would be what is called semi-Pelagian. Semi-Pelagianism is the idea that, yes, there was an ill effect when Adam sinned in the garden. Romans 5, 12, there was an ill effect. But it wasn't so bad that man can't still reach out to God. And so it's a cooperative thing. The semi-Pelagians say, well, God does his part, man does his part. It's the perfect marriage, and it results in salvation. So man isn't really dead in his trespasses and sins. He's just sick. He's really sick, but he's not sick enough that he can't reach out to God. And so there's Pelagianism, heresy. Semi-Pelagianism actually was decried as a heresy later in the early church as well, but is embraced by so many churches today theologically. And then there's the biblical view, which we call total depravity. And so we've unraveled that over the last couple of weeks. Total depravity means man is not as bad as he could be. In other words, he's, not everyone's a mass murderer. Not everyone is doing all these heinous sins and crimes. But man is dead in his trespasses and sins, which means that the sin nature that was passed on from Adam, original sin, passed on through Adam to all of his posterity, and so all men inherit a sin nature. They have a propensity towards sin. They're they're spiritually dead. They're dead in their trespasses and sin. Every aspect of their being, their emotions, their intellect, and their will, all infected by sin. And so we talked about this last week, 
Whereas we would love to be able to say we have free will. We do not have free will. Our will has been tainted by sin. Every part of us tainted by sin. This is why we must turn to Jesus Christ in forgiveness and repentance. But as we learned last week, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so this is the amazing grace of God who provided Jesus Christ. Man does not move toward Jesus, and so Jesus moved toward man. Jesus came to the earth for a specific purpose, to free us from the curse of sin. And so man will not come on his own. He's incapable of coming. He's unwilling to come. But God, being rich in mercy, gave up his son to come to this earth. And God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. General revelation is not enough to save, but God has revealed himself in a special, specific way in the person of Jesus Christ and through his word. And this is what the Gospel of John is primarily about. It's about the deity of Jesus and the eternal life that Jesus offers and man has a propensity to reject. So we're here in John chapter 6 where Jesus has publicly performed all these miracles right in plain view. And he's playing off his astounding miracle of feeding the 5,000 with just two fishes and five loaves of bread. And he uses that miracle that they all had witnessed to explain the most important spiritual truth that they'll ever hear. That he is the bread of life, the living bread. And all who believe in him will have eternal life as opposed to eternal death. And so as we break this section down today, verses 51 through 59, we're going to find three aspects of the living bread in this continuing encounter. And so let me read the text to you, and then we'll look at these three different aspects. So look at verse 51. We'll begin there. We'll read down through verse 59, then we'll pick it apart. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever and the bread also which I will give for the, for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Wow. I mean, just on a quick read, there's a lot there to chew on. 
No pun intended there. There's a lot there for us to consider, right? So let's break it down and let's look at these three aspects about the living bread. So if you're taking notes first, there is the offer of the living bread. There is the offer of the living bread. Look at verse 51 again. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is making a legitimate offer that if they eat this living bread, that they will live forever. Okay? Now, before we look at this astounding offer, notice the setting of this encounter down in verse 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. All this takes place in the synagogue in Capernaum, which is Jesus' home base. And so after disappearing from these thrill seekers, after he walked on the Sea of Galilee, they have now found him, and he's teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. So you probably have what that looks like in your mind's eye. Let me show you a couple pictures. So if you look up on the screen, it's currently blank. (laughs) There really isn't a synagogue. Oh, okay. I'm just kidding. Um, this was funny for me, and I wanted to show you. It, it has nothing to do with the synagogue itself. But when you're going into Capernaum, you got to go by this guy. If you want to use the restroom, it's going to cost you. So next, screen, next slide, please. Pay for toilet. So I'm serious. There are no other restrooms you have to pay if you want to use the facilities. Next slide. Go back back, back, right there. Okay. This is just a picture of me. There's a sign. See how it's Capernaum is spelled at the top, C-A-P-H-A-R-N-A-U-M. There's a lot of funny spellings when you get to Israel. Uh, They try to use English, but they also combine uh, their language with ours. And so Capernaum is known as the town of Jesus. Next slide, please. Next slide. Okay, now what I'm going to show you is the, uh, it's a late 4th century uh, A.D. synagogue, and it was built on the remains of what we just read. Okay, so it's a similar-looking synagogue built on this synagogue that Jesus uh, was teaching in. So if you go to the next slide, you'll see it here. So they would have some sort of a podium up in this area here, and there's a a place to sit all the way around the perimeter of these synagogues. And of course, in every major city, there's a synagogue, and these are where the rabbis would teach. And so this is where Jesus, in in a setting similar to this, this is where Jesus is teaching when he's confronted by all these people. So thank you. So I wanted to give you a little bit of a visual as to what this looks like here. When we look at verse 51, we find three statements from Jesus concerning this offer, this legitimate offer of eternal life. First, he tells them of the provenance of the bread. Provenance is P-R-O-V-E-N-A-N-C-E. It means source or origin. And notice 
here in verse 51 that he says that he is the living bread that came down out of heaven. So the origin of where Jesus came from is from the glories of heaven. But like we have a tendency to do, we have sentimentalized the incarnation. We love to display the manger scene at Christmas time, put up figurines on the fireplace mantle. We buy coloring books for our kids, grandkids of the stable and the smiling donkeys and sheep. With this little manger, with Jesus wrapped in these pristine white swaddling clothes. But when's the last time you just stopped and considered what that manger scene represents? Jesus was and is God incarnate, holy God in the flesh. He had created the world and all that's in it. Adam and Eve, whom he created, rebelled against him, sinned by eating the forbidden fruit. This cast the entire perfect world that Jesus had created into a cesspool of sin, and sin has affected everything that was once perfect and pure. The sin nature that we talked about earlier that was passed along from Adam would infect every person that would ever inhabit the earth that Jesus created. Man would become selfish and sinful and by nature was deserving of the wrath of God. And all the people that Jesus created would want nothing to do with him. And it was this sin-filled, sin-tainted, physical world that Jesus would come to for one specific reason. Because he loves sinners. Because of God's holy character, he must punish sin and all those who commit sin. God is angry and wrathful against sin and sinners. And so in the greatest act ever, the greatest act of love in history, God the Father sent God the Son to come to the earth to do what man could not do for himself, to propitiate or satisfy the Father's wrath against sin and pay the penalty for all who would repent of their sin and trust in him for salvation. Jesus came down out of the perfect, glorious setting of heaven to this sin-infected, sin-tainted earth to be physically born as a man. Why? Again, because he loves sinners. Why would he love us? We are unlovable. We are sinners who have violated his holy law. We've rebelled against him. And yet, God has a special love for those whom he has created. And so this offer that he makes here in verse 51 is a genuine offer. But sinful man has no desire to have anything to do with Jesus. Which brings us to the second statement from Jesus here, and it's regarding the promise about the bread. The promise about the bread. He says, those who eat it will have eternal life. And again, he's speaking of spiritual life here. Because these people are void of the Spirit of God. They're unregenerate. They're only thinking in physical terms. But Jesus is speaking in spiritual terms. Yes, those who trust in Jesus Christ will one day have their physical bodies joined up with their souls or spirits, and their bodies will be glorified. So we said last week there are two major components of man, right? There is the material part, which is our bodies, and there's the immaterial part, which is our soul and or spirit. 
Okay? So that's called a dichotomous view. A dichotomous view. Two main components of man, an immaterial part and a material part. So we have these physical bodies. We talk that they will one day die. And yet, we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, that we can have great hope that if we do believe in Jesus Christ, that we will one day have our bodies joined back up with our spirit or our soul. So at the moment of our death, what happens? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Our soul separates from our body and will either go to the glories of heaven, those who have received eternal life, those who trusted in Christ, repented of their sin, they placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Upon their physical death on this earth, their soul or spirit will go into the glories of heaven, absent with the body, present with the Lord. Those who have not taken the offer that Jesus makes here in verse 51, their soul or spirit will go to an eternal place of torment called hell or Hades. And so at death, our soul is separated from our body. Now, we have this promise here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you want to go there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, at some point, there is going to be a resurrection of our bodies. And so our body will be glorified and joined back up with our spirit in heaven for those who have taken this offer of eternal life. I read this at every funeral I do, usually at the graveside service. I read this passage of Scripture. It is the great hope, and it is a great comfort to us as Christians. Look at verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4. But we do, know, do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. In other words, their, their bodies are in the grave. Their souls are in heaven. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. This is the reuniting here of the body and soul. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. All those who have trusted in Christ, taken the offer that's presented in in verse 51 of eternal life, believing in Christ, their bodies will leave the grave and they will go to match up with their soul or spirit in heaven. Then, because... When Jesus comes to rapture the church, there will be believers on the earth, and so they will not have seen physical death at that point. So he's talking about the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive and remain will be caught up together. This is the great snatching up, which we get the word rapture from. They will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's comforting. We can eat like a horse at Thanksgiving 
And as I said, even if our bodies deteriorate and eventually die, there's the great comfort that our bodies will not remain in the grave forever. They will be glorified as they are joined up with our spirit or soul in heaven. All this back to this offer that Jesus is making in verse 51. There will be a bodily resurrection at the rapture of the church. But again, here, he's speaking of the soul. Jesus is speaking of the soul, the immaterial part of man. He's contrasting spiritual life and spiritual death. In other words, if these people eat this living bread, they will receive eternal life for their soul. Now, we considered this in great detail back in chapter 3 of John, verse 36, says, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God will remain upon him. Again, at death, a, a person's soul either goes into the presence of the Lord or their soul goes to a real place of torment called Hades or hell. So Jesus is making the promise that all who partake of this bread that he's offering will receive eternal life. They, they will not experience eternal death or eternal torment. They will be with him forever in glory. And folks, honestly, we know this. We should know this. But should this not be a motivator for us to tell other people about this offer that Jesus makes here in verse 51? Shouldn't this be our motive? Do we really want to see people that we know and love go to eternal torment? Look, we can't control the rest. We can just be faithful with the gospel, but why aren't we being faithful with the gospel? It's the power of God unto salvation. We talked about this last week. This is the power source that God uses to draw people to himself. No one's going to come on their own. Only through the drawing of the Lord, through the drawing of the Spirit of God, through the convicting Spirit of, of, of God, he draws man to himself. How does he do it? Through the powerful gospel message. And we have it. We have it. And we should freely give it. So Jesus is making this promise that all who partake of this bread that he's offering will receive eternal life. They will not experience eternal death or eternal torment. They will be with him forever in glory. And this brings us to the third statement by Jesus, and it is the picture of the bread. The picture of the bread. He says, the bread is his flesh. Now we're getting somewhere, okay? The bread is his flesh, so as it relates to Jesus' offer here, he makes three statements. First, that he came down out of heaven. Second, all those who eat the living bread will have eternal life. And now third, he identifies the bread and tells them it is his flesh that they must eat. And so he takes the imagery one step further and says that the bread that he will give is his flesh. And here's the key to understanding this entire passage. What he is referring to hasn't happened yet. You see that here? It is yet future. Notice, he says he will give this bread. 
which again, he's identified as his flesh. He will give the bread. He's speaking of his impending sacrifice on the cross of Calvary, which at this time, it obviously not yet happened. It will happen. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are a history of Jesus' life on the earth, and they are a lead-up to the cross. The second aspect is their opposition to the living bread. First, we just looked at the offer of the living bread. Now, second, their opposition to the living bread. Look at verse 52. Verse 52, then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So there's three components here to their opposition. And the first is their question. We see this in verse 52. They begin to talk among themselves and they ask each other, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're not tracking at all with Jesus. They do not understand what in the world he's talking about, and this is not surprising given their lost condition. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So they're unregenerate. They're thinking only in physical terms. Years and years ago, I was teaching on this at our church in Illinois, and I'm sharing about the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration and illumination, and right there in the class, this guy raises his hand and he says, Pastor Dave, I don't understand. I don't understand. These people who had finally tracked Jesus down and found him in the synagogue at Capernaum, do the same thing. They raise their hands, (laughs) and they say, we don't understand. They view all that Jesus is saying as foolishness. All of this is consistent with what Jesus said in verse 44 that we looked at last week. No one can come to him unless the Father who sent him draws him. And so there's a spiritual blindness in those who are spiritually dead. They can't see, nor can they fully understand spiritual truth unless unless God opens their eyes. Which brings us then to Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer, verses 53 through 56 that we just read. Jesus says in verse 53, unless they eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, they will have no life in them. Meaning, again, no spiritual life. They're physically alive at the time, but they'll have no spiritual life. So he goes on to say in verse 54 that those who do eat his flesh and drink his blood will have eternal life and will be raised up on the last day. And then in verse 56 he says, those who eat his flesh and drink his blood, will, he will abide in them and they in him. And so what is Jesus communicating here to these grumbling Jews? And this leads us then to Jesus' illustration. 
Jesus' illustration. Again, verses 53 through 56. And we found the hint of what he's referring to back in verse 51 when he speaks of the offering of the bread in a future sense. And he identifies the bread as his flesh. He's speaking of his ultimate purpose as to why he came to the earth, which was to do the will of the Father and die on a cross to save sinners. Again, when he says they must eat his flesh and drink his blood, he's not speaking in literal terms. That would be gross. And by the way, because the Jews are thinking very matter-of-factly and physically, they're thinking, oh, what in the world is going on? He says we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. That's against the Mosaic law. They couldn't drink blood or eat bloody meat. It's against the law. They are absolutely confused. What he's saying is one day soon. And it was soon. Jesus lived 30 years on the earth in virtual obscurity. Never had a sinful thought, idea, or word that came out of his mouth. He had a three-year public ministry. That's what's recorded primarily in the Gospels. Leading up to the cross. He's halfway through his public ministry. And he's talking to these grumbling Jews. And what he means is he's going to go to the cross. And it's going to be soon. His body or his flesh will die. And his blood will be shed for sinners. And in that sense, people who want spiritual life rather than spiritual death must trust in him and the meaning and significance of his impending death on the cross. But again, these people that Jesus is speaking to here do not understand that he's speaking about the cross on which he will eventually die. A few years back, we had a Jehovah's Witness come to our house, and very arrogantly, he began with this. Not, hi, how you doing? Uh, I'm Joe. He said, did you know that Jesus didn't die on a cross? That's how he started. Did you know that Jesus didn't die on a cross? And I said, oh, really? Did you know your denial of Jesus dying on the cross is a sure sign that you're going to perish in your sins? Let me show you something. And then I took him to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18 that says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved... It's the power of God. I then laid out for him the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the power source. I laid out for him the gospel. But first, he needed to know that he had been lied to about the deity of Jesus. And so I took him all over the Bible to show him that Jesus was not created. He was indeed the creator. He's God incarnate. I mean, have we not seen that at every stop along the way in John? I mean, every stop along the way, we see an affirmation that Jesus is God. And so I spent a lot of time with this man. 
on my porch, and he lost it. He totally lost it. He started wailing like a baby, crying, I mean, alligator tears, dropping on the floor. I don't know what I believe. I don't know what I believe. And I said, this is what you must believe. This is what you must believe to have eternal life. Then the van pulled up in front of our house with all the guys that had been working the neighborhood. And I told them, don't get in the van. Don't get, I'll take you home. Let's finish our talk. I'll take you home. No, he was pressured. They said, come on, come on. They could see he was crying. He got in the van, never heard from him again. I told him, come back to my house. Let's sit out here and talk. You see, the power is in the gospel. Our job is to do what I did, and that's all I can do. That's all I could do. I'm powerless to bring anybody to faith in Christ. You're powerless to bring anyone to faith in Christ. Our job, just be faithful with the gospel. Just give it. Unleash it. And God will use it to draw those whom he desires to himself. So Jesus is pointing uh, these thrill seekers to the cross when he tells them they must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. And again, he's just talking about what he's going to do on the cross of Calvary. Now, you may know this, but verses 53 through 56 are often used as a proof text for the Roman Catholic Church and their understanding of the Lord's Supper. So they believe in what is called transubstantiation, which means they believe that when they partake of the bread and the wine, that those two elements literally turn into the body and blood of Jesus. Because they, too, misunderstand what Jesus means here when he says that these people must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood to receive eternal life. He's talking of the cross. So to them, this partaking of these two elements is a sacrament or a means of grace, which is why they partake of it whenever they meet. But according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the bread and the cup are just symbols of Jesus' body and shed blood on the cross of Calvary. We read 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26, every single month, the first Sunday of every month, we read that passage of Scripture because it's so important that we understand that the elements that we're partaking of are purely symbolic of Christ's body and blood. They don't somehow turn into his body and blood. In other words, Jesus is not in the refrigerator in the next room. Partaking of the bread and the cup are reminders of the significance of what Christ did on the cross. Communion is a memorial service. That's why over and over in those verses in 1 Corinthians 11, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a memorial service. But people still are taking this passage of Scripture in the way that it was not intended And so as we go back here to John chapter 6, Jesus is not speaking of communion here because he's not yet gone to the cross. He's speaking of his impending death on the cross. But it is a legitimate question to ask, why did Jesus need to shed his blood? 
Why did he need to shed his blood? Well, we find the answer in Hebrews 9.22 where it says, And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus had to shed his blood on the cross of Calvary or there would be no remission of sin. This brings us then to the third aspect, and it's the opportunity for the living bread. First, the offer of the living bread. Second, their opposition to the living bread. And now third, the opportunity for the living bread. And this offer is for all people. Look at verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus says, he who eats this bread which came down out of heaven, meaning himself, will live forever. As opposed to die forever. Because all of our souls will live forever. Our bodies will go to the grave They'll one day be matched up with our soul or spirit, but our soul and spirit will live on. Bodies will die, saved or unsaved, they'll go to the grave. At some point, there's a resurrection of those dead bodies to join up with their soul or spirit. Either they'll have eternal life with the Lord in glory, or they'll have eternal death in a place called Hades or or hell. So what must a person believe about Jesus to receive eternal life? I, I talk with folks all the time, and, and I understand it. I, I, I mean, I, I'm not the shell answer man. Remember those commercials back in the day? I, I, I don't know everything about everything. I'm not a walking biblical encyclopedia. I've studied the Bible for a long time. I poured over Scripture for a long time. I... I'm comfortable. If you have a question, I can probably answer it to some degree. If I don't know, I'll tell you I need to find out. I need to <laughs> look into this a little bit more. But I've talked to people over the years, and they're fearful of stepping out to give the gospel because of these questions that may come in. Let me just say to you, just, just be humble with people. Share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ If they ask you a question that you don't know, say, thank you for asking, I'll get back to you. Don't try to wing it. Don't give them a wrong answer. It's okay. It's okay. Just say, I haven't thought about that. I haven't studied that. Let me study that, and I'll get back to you. But this is what I do know, that the gospel begins with God. He is holy and righteous and perfect in all of his ways, and we are not. We are sinners. Inherited the sin nature from Adam. We sin volitionally. We're a mess. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. But as we have said over the course of the last couple of weeks, an amazing offer has been put on the table. All those who believe in Jesus Christ, who He is, God incarnate, You can't believe in a false Jesus and be saved. 
you have to believe in who Jesus is. So it's essential that we let people know as we're giving the gospel that Jesus is God. And we can take them all over the New Testament to show that. Jesus is God in the flesh. God sent Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, to come to this earth and to die. Why did he have to die? Because the sins of the people he was dying in the place of needed to be paid for. And Jesus propitiated or satisfied the righteous anger or wrath of God against their sin. All who would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a call here to believe in who Jesus is and what he did on the cross of Calvary. To trust in that for our salvation. The word salvation literally means to rescue. Jesus came to rescue us from what we deserve, which is eternal death. He's offered eternal life to all who believe upon him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Anyone and everyone who wants to believe in Christ may. Well, how can you say that, Pastor Dave? We just looked at John 6, 44. No one can come to him unless the Father who sent me draws him exactly. Exactly. God is in the business through his Spirit to draw people to himself. And those who desire to receive eternal life by believing in Jesus Christ will be saved. You know, um, oftentimes we'll stop there, which is really a travesty, because we must explain that Jesus defeated death, right? He overcame the grave. He was resurrected on the third day, and he lives today to prepare a place for those who will trust in him. Man is an awful, rotten sinner. Even the best of us, <laughs> which I'm nowhere near even on the list, even those who would be considered the best of us are still awful, rotten sinners, not deserving of what God has to offer, and yet he still gives this offer of eternal life for all who will believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, and by the way, the cross is central to our proclamation of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.23, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. In Acts 17, when Paul was reasoning with the Thessalonians in the synagogue, he painstakingly explained and gave evidence that Jesus had to suffer on the cross and rise from the dead, and he boldly proclaimed, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, the Messiah, the Holy One of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, as we have poured over this passage of Scripture, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you, you have not left us in our sins. You have provided Jesus Christ the perfect sacrifice to die in the place of all who would believe in him. And Lord, we are all passionate 
about this. We're all compassionate as it relates to those who do not know Christ as their Savior. And so, Lord, I pray, as we should, that as a result of the gospel being proclaimed today in our church, that if there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ as Savior, that you would draw them to yourself through the power of the gospel. And we would thank you for that. And we would marvel in that. And we would glory in that. We thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.